want to thank Will for uh, leading us through our time of prayer. It's been a uh, special time. Um, I am not your pastor, but I have an opportunity to hear some of the things that you're going through. Do I need to turn this up anymore? Is it okay? Closer, closer to me. Better? Okay. Is it better? It it's allows me to kind of get to know you better. Is that better? How about this? I can use this. Is that okay? Okay, good. Um, and just hearing some of the prayer requests reminds, reminds me that sometimes we're separated from our family. Sometimes we're struggling with our jobs. Sometimes there is a difficulty that we can't solve within our own family. Um, and I hear this week in and week out. And as we sang this morning, Be Thou My Vision, I want you guys to remember, and maybe for myself to remember also, that there's a time coming that this pain and sorrow and sickness and discouragement and sin and shame will all be gone, completely gone. And as Christians, we look forward to that. We long for that. It won't be a vision anymore. We'll be in the presence of God. We'll be in the presence of our Father. And there will be no more heartache and no more tears. And we'll have the ability to come before our Savior, and we won't have to think of him as a vision or as someone we can't see or touch. We'll be there in his presence. So that time is coming. And I, and I just hear it week after week, and it's in my family too. There's pain and there's heartache. But we continue to fight the good fight. We continue to put the Lord where he belongs. And we come to him in our time of need, in our time of sickness, in our time of discouragement. And he reminds us what a good God he is. So I hope that time of worship reminds us of that. And I want to thank um, our worship team for that. So I do like to keep you up to date what's been happening this last week. This last week, uh, this is something called a health clinic. This is Organization of Chinese Americans, OCA. Every year they have a health clinic. Calvin and Michelle um, donated their dental skills. Uh, Deborah, uh, she's a physical therapist student. She was doing some PT work for people. And uh, it's just a neat time to meet other dentists, other medical people, and um, get to know some of the people who are underprivileged restaurant workers, people that can't afford medical care, come to this clinic every year. Um, it's probably been going on like 40 years, and it's a really neat thing here in Pittsburgh that we do uh, every year. So I'm thankful for those people that were able to serve this last week. Uh, you guys yesterday got a great day out. Uh, apple picking, you freshmen don't have a name yet, I understand, so you guys have to choose a name uh, for your class, but it's nice to see you out there. I think this is our sophomore class, uh, sophomores, and I, I, this is our juniors, right? This is our junior class here, right? And I didn't see a picture of the senior class. They must be here, but I'm sorry, I didn't see a picture of the senior class, but these are the guys that organized, drove, Jeff in particular, uh, in the back row there was the one Every week, he'd say, Gordon, we don't have enough cars. Gordon, we don't have cars. And every week, he'd get another car. How many, is Jeff here this morning? Missed. He missed this morning. I think by the end, he had 11 cars going. And I was very thankful that he understood people had needs. And he did everything possible. He goes, we're going to rent cars. We're going to split the cost of the rental. We're going to get more people from PCC to drive. And he really had a heart. So uh, for our drivers and those people that sacrificed yesterday to go, thank you. So I did not have to go drive. Thank you for doing that. So I didn't have to go do that. I appreciate that very much. Okay, we're going through John. 
Uh, if you have your notebooks, we're in John chapter two. We're finally in our second chapter of John. It's gonna go a little bit faster as we go on to more stories in John. Uh, does anyone not have a journal? Does anyone not have a journal? We would like to get you a journal. Andrew, okay, we need a journal over here on this side. Anyone else? I want everyone to have a journal. Oh, we have a couple back here. Thank you, thank you. Francis, you probably don't have a journal. Francis, do you have a journal? Behind you, Francis, let's see. Oh, Charlie, Charlie needs a journal. Okay, okay, good. All right, thank you, our ushers will get you one. Okay, if you don't have a journal, please keep your hand up until you get one. But in the meantime, why don't the rest of us stand and read together our passage. Okay, let's read. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Father, we are thankful that we can study this morning about Christ showing his glory, showing his compassion, showing his grace. But we look even more forward to the time when we're with you in your presence, having great joy, the ability to um, put this sinful body behind us, our shame, our brokenness, and come into your presence and experience the fullness of joy. May we look forward to that time and know that that time is soon. Pray these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> you that are familiar with John know that there's <clears throat> seven I am's in John. You know, I am the door, I am the shepherd, I am the bread, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But there's also seven miracles in John. Now, seven miracles we're going to get through um, one by one. Today, we're going to cover this one in the upper right-hand corner, uh, water into wine. We know he feeds the 5,000. He walks on water. There is an important miracle of raising Lazarus, and there's three healings. He heals the nobleman's son, he heals the paralytic, and he heals the man born blind. So these seven miracles we're going to cover through John, and each one has a very specific um, reason why he does it. There's timing to it, and there's a purpose to each one. He just doesn't do miracles just to do miracles. It's very important you understand the context of each of his miracles. Today we're gonna to spend more time about this water into wine. And we often pass over this miracle, his first miracle, and not see the significance of it. But today I hope we take time and understand the importance of what was done at this time. Now last week uh, we talked about life-changing experience and I shared with you my life-changing experience of getting my Schwinn bike in second grade with a banana seat and waiting for that bike and how it introduced me to a friend in a whole new world of riding out to the mall and to the drugstore. It changed my life, 
changed my friendships. And what I told you last week, it actually changed my identity of who I was. I was one of those kids now that could ride my bike to go out uh, all the way until five o'clock till my mom called me home. I could be um, a different person all the way to that time. But for you in this congregation who've experienced marriage, who've been to a wedding, I would probably say that is the most life-changing experience you've ever had. Of all the things you've done in your life, all the experience you've had, marriage, I'm gonna pull up our most newlywed here, there's our newlyweds, uh, William and Eva, it's changed their life more than anything else. When you say for better or worse, for richer or poorer, or sickness and health, till death do us part, that commitment, that level of relationship is the highest level of um, change in your life. And I'm gonna also ponder you that this couple probably also underwent a great deal of change. Louise, I don't know if you would understand when you married Adam that you would end up in Pittsburgh. You would end up at a Chinese church. You would eat Asian food every Sunday. You would be around Asian kids all this time. You could never imagine how much your life would change by marrying Adam. And it has um, affected your life forever, right? This, this relationship uh, with him. And it's one of the most important covenants we will ever make in our life. Unfortunately, I think in modern society, as we look out in the world, many people are not changed by marriage. It doesn't. We have this selfish attitude. It's about me. Life is about what I want. It's about all the things that um, satisfy my own desires. So I brought up a picture here of uh, people that are probably not changed by marriage. You think that, you know, this is about me. It's about what I want. This is the, uh, all about uh, my satisfaction. You would see this as um, an example of that. And here's another um, one where this man is very concerned about his dryness and he is carrying a single bottle of beer and his wife is helping him as he gets thirsty. He can take more beer out as he travels along. And then this man, uh, maybe traveling with his wife and mother-in-law, travels very nicely uh, with them. But it's interesting because I'm pointing this out because marriage should change us. Marriage should be something that makes a difference in our life. We've made a covenant here. And even as we see the news today, the marriage itself, you guys know marriage is being redefined. We know that marriage is being whatever we want it to be, not what the Lord says it is. We've changed the definition of marriage. And here is an interesting headline about a couple just deciding to take their vows on a sidewalk where the cars and the buses are going by, taking it very lightly, and their vows were, as long as we love each other, we'll be committed to this. It's not a commitment eternally until death do us part, until I don't feel anymore, until I don't have that loving feeling anymore. And so the, even the marriage vows have taken a turn in our society. But I'd like to spend a few moments talking about what love in marriage really represents. And I'm using pictures of my daughter's wedding uh, last year, my daughter Mara. Uh, when Mara took her vows, um, I made certain, one thing I asked, you can write your own vows, it's no problem, you can say these things about how much you love each other, but I really wanted them to say to each other, for better or worse, or richer or poorer, in sickness and health, to death do us part. There's a sacred covenant there something that's for better or worse or richer or poor, and there's nothing that would separate it except death. That's the only thing that would separate their love for each other. It's special significance. And what we really do at that wedding, it's a public covenant. 
You're around your friends. You're around the people that were with you in the good times and the bad times. The people that you have a relationship with. You say, you know what? I want them to witness my vows. I want them to be there as I make this covenant with someone else. And I'm going to say that marriage is the highest, most noble covenant, most important relationship you will ever have on a human level. Ours with the Lord is probably the most important. But humanly speaking, nothing more noble, nothing more sacred than the covenant of marriage. And all of us have experienced common grace. Common grace is the sunset. Common grace is a good meal. Common grace is watching the Steelers win. This is things that we can all enjoy, or the Eagles in this case. Um, but the greatest common grace that everyone on the earth can experience is marriage. Marriage is one of those things that says, you know what, I extend it out. Here's some of the married couples in our church who experience something wonderful. And God says, this is a common grace that you can all experience. And any society that protects marriage, treasures marriage, says marriage is an honorable institution, that society will be safe and protected. When we start to destroy marriage, we start to break down marriage and call marriage whatever we want to call it, that society is in jeopardy and in danger because the building block of society is marriage, is the family. And when you start pulling that apart, and you start destroying the family, the whole society at its foundation, at the foundational level, will be hurt. And it's interesting, I'm bringing all this up because the Lord chose to do his first miracle where? At a wedding. He said, I'm going to do the first thing. I'm going to start my ministry. I'm going to put the foundation of my ministry, how um, all my foundation for my future works, ministry is going to start at a wedding. This is what uh, John Calvin says about this. God very commonly takes on the character of a husband to us. Indeed, the union by which he binds us to himself is like a sacred wedlock, and it's based upon mutual faithfulness. He performs all the duties of a true and faithful husband. In return, he demands love and con conjugal chastity. That is, we're not to yield our souls to Satan and to lust and the filthy desires of the flesh to be defiled by them. He goes on to say, the more holy and chaste a husband is, which is Christ, obviously, the more wrathful he becomes if he sees his wife, which is us, the church, inclining our heart or her heart to a rival. In like manner, the Lord, who's wedded us to himself in truth, manifests, and this is burning jealousy. Why is God jealous? Why is God a jealous God? He, here he tells us. This is the reason why. Whenever we, neglecting the purity of the holy marriage, become polluted with wicked lusts. He's the perfect husband. He protects us. He guides us. He does everything he can to sacrifice for us. And in turn, he expects us to be the faithful bride, to support, to obey, to follow his lead. And whenever we give our heart to the things of this world, the things of our own, uh, this is what we studied in ACF, right? To the, to the uh, lusts of the flesh, to, the, to, the, um, to our eyes, and the boastful pride of life, when we give our heart to those things, we are being the unfaithful husband, or excuse me, wife, to the faithful husband. So if you understand the sanctity of marriage, the greatest human relationship, Christ says, this is the best way I can represent my love to you. 
It's the highest, noblest relationship. If you guys want to understand how much I love you, think about the husband and wife that love each other. That's the best way I can picture to you how much I love you. And he does it through the institution of marriage. And all of us need to recognize that, that the most important relation we have humanly is represented vertically now in the person of Christ. Okay, so let's go to today's passage. Let's go to the past. That's kind of background for our passage today. Our passage today, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So you understand the context of this ceremony. For one year, the groom is preparing an engagement for his future wife. One year, he's probably building a house. One year, he's showing that I'm financially capable. He wants to show the in-laws, his family, his friends, I can take care of my wife. He's preparing not only the house, but also this wedding feast. And the wedding feast back then lasts two, three, four days. It's a long wedding feast. So this whole year, the guy's preparing for this. And in the middle of the ceremony, when all his friends, all his family is there, the catastrophe happens. The wine runs out. And it shows a great need that, hey, I can't really provide. Hey, I'm not able to do what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to provide for my wife and, and all of you. And it shows I've failed in my job. So Mary, Christ's mother, asked Christ, hey, they have no wine, right? And you're thinking, why would Mary bring this up to Christ? They have no wine. And I want you to think for a moment. Um, she may have special insight. He's been baptized. He's had the 40 days of temptation. Christ is saying, hey, behold the Lamb of God. And she may have special insight saying, he's going to start his ministry today. This is it. This is your big chance. Get ready to start ministry. And that's possible. It's very possible. But I think the most likely answer is that for her whole life, Whenever there was a problem at home, who would she turn to? Whenever there's a crisis, who always had the perfect answer? Whenever something was broken, who could always fix it perfectly? Who was the best carpenter on the face of the earth that she could always turn to and get something fixed? She had 30 years of experience with the Son of God, who always had the right answer, who always had the solution, who never panicked, who always showed compassion and grace and a perfect solution to every problem. For 30 years, she's been turning to this guy, hey, Christ, fix this. Hey, Jesus, come fix this. Hey, and he would always be able to do it perfectly. And so I think it's just natural. Hey, there's a problem here. They ran out of wine. Hey, Jesus, there's a problem here. I think it's very natural for her to turn to her son and do that. So she does that. And Christ gives her a very interesting answer. Well, mom... Let me just enjoy the wedding. Mom, you know, just let me have some time. No, he doesn't say. What does he say here? And this is very critical to the passage. When he says, woman, woman, what does this have to do with me? Thinking, wait, don't you recognize? That's just your mom. You don't call your mom woman. Like, woman, you don't say that to your mom. Why would he say that? And the Greek word here is a little bit more like ma'am. It's kind of like a sir. It's kind of a respectful term, like someone that you would show respect to. And I believe he's doing it to create distance between his mom and he. Mom, for 30 years, I've done everything that you've asked of me. I've been an obedient son. I've listened to you. I'm under your authority. I live under your house. When you tell me to do something as a faithful son, I will do it. But there's a change coming. And this is critical here, that he says right now, right here, 
I am now under authority of my father. I've been about my father's business ever since a 12-year-old. He's in the temple saying, you know, I'm about my father's business. But now there's a big change here. And he's saying, you know what? I've listened to you, but now I'm going to a higher calling. I'm going to follow my heavenly father. He's going to set me on a path now. And my path is very different than what you want for me as my mother. And yes, I respect you. Yes, you're still my mother. But I have to be about something very different now. And when he says woman, it's a big break with his mom. Not in a disrespectful way, but as a higher calling. And Christ's higher calling is going to take him on a different path for the rest of his life. Some of you fathers have been through this, and it's a very difficult day in my life. The day that I had to walk Mara down the aisle. I knew what was waiting for me at the end of the aisle is my future son-in-law, Phil. And it was my job when the pastor said, who gives this woman in holy matrimony? I have to say what? Yeah, we do. Her mother and I give her. And what am I saying there when I take her hand and put it into Phil's hand? I'm saying that there's a change here, that you had to obey me. You had to follow my rules. You had to be part of my household for 24 years. You had to do this for 24 years. And now, as you're married, you're under a new authority now. You're his responsibility. He has to now pay your bills. He now has to take care of you. He has to take care of all the things that I was responsible for before. It's a change. Something has changed here. And I believe that's what Christ is doing here. He's making a change here. It's not disrespectful. It's showing what his true priority has always been. It's just come to fruition. So look at it a little bit deeper. And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? There is a clear path that Christ has in mind. There's one time that Christ was in a house and he was talking to his disciples and there's a great crowd forming around the house and someone says, hey Jesus, hey Jesus, your mom and your, and your brothers are outside. And you remember what Christ says during that time? He says, you know what? Whoever does the will of my father in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Yes, I know that's my mom. Yes, I know that's my brother outside, but you know who my true brothers and my sisters and my mothers really are? It's those who do the will of my Father in heaven. So each of us have parents, each of us have brothers and sisters. We love them, they're part of our family, wonderful. But you know what, my true brothers and sisters are you sitting right in front of me. It's you who are sitting right next to each other. You're the ones I'm really tied to. You're the ones I'm gonna spend eternity with. You're the ones pulling in the same direction I'm pulling. We're following the Lord together. We're giving our lives together. There's something special that ties us together that's deeper than blood. Yes, that blood relationship is so important, but we're tied for eternal purposes. There's nothing that can separate us. The love of Christ binds us together in a family that can never be separated. And that's different. Christ is saying there's something different. Yes, your family is important, but there's something deeper going on. And whoever does the will of my Father, that's who I'm tied to. You guys who are spending time in God's word together. And he goes on. Later, someone tries to say something nice to him after he's doing some miracles. Blessed the womb that bore you and the breast that you nursed. You know, isn't that wonderful? Whoever is your mom is a wonderful woman. And Christ corrects him and says, on the contrary, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Yes, my mother's important. But you know who's really special? Know who's I'm really tied to? Those that who are really blessed? It's those who hear the word of God 
and obey it. That's who I'm really tied to. That's where my heart belongs to. That's the one that has a special place in my heart. Those that are doing my will, or excuse me, hear the word of God and obeying it. It's a whole different level that Christ is bringing us to. It's a whole different level of fellowship and depth of fellowship and spiritual understanding. Because we're not in this room by accident. We're here because of our Christ and he drew us together and said, you guys are my family. I love each one of you. We're here together. Nothing can separate us. Okay, and the last thing here says, kind of interesting. Um, Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And I basically think here, he's saying, mom, woman, you're on the wrong timetable. You want me to do things according to your schedule. You have an agenda for me. I understand that, but you know what? I'm not on your agenda anymore. I'm not on your timetable anymore. There's a divine timetable that I'm on. There's something that's more important. I'm leading my life to the cross and to the resurrection. Everything I do for the next three years is gonna take me right to that cross. It's gonna take me right to that tomb where I'll be resurrected. Everything else is not important. And he's kind of telling her, you know what? You can't know that timetable. Only my father knows that timetable. Okay, so we understand that that timetable will lead him to the greatest work. And as I told you before, this is the central act in all of history. Our AD and our BC is completely divided by Christ's death and resurrection. Everything before Christ, everything after Christ, all of history centers upon Christ. That's the divine timetable. All the Old Testament, all the New Testament, everything centers upon Christ and that divine timetable. Okay, let's go on. Let's go on to the actual miracle. The actual miracle here. Now there are six stone water jars there for the rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So uh, six times 25, you take the average 180 gallons of water here. Six stone pots. Stone is used for purification. Clay pots could get dirty. Stone they felt would not get dirty. So they used stone pots for purification. Uh, it really wasn't for cleanliness. It's more a ritual. It's more for these purification rites. It's something that they'd wash their hands in, they'd wash their utensils in, they wash their bowls in, they'd try everything they could do to make these things pure. And it's interesting that Christ is saying, you know what, we're gonna bring you something much purer than this. You have this water pots here. I'm gonna bring you something much better. In some ways, using these purification pots, he's gonna fill it to the brim, overflowing with something even better than this water. The water um, is not as important what Christ would bring. Back then, the water was not very clean. It's not like the bottled water you guys have nowadays. It's purified and, and refined and, and you can drink it. Their water was actually quite dirty. So what they would actually do is either use wine completely, which would be pure, or they dilute their water with half water, half wine, because the alcohol inside the wine would somewhat cleanse the water. And when you really wanted to water it down, you could go half and half, or you could go one-tenth wine and maybe nine-tenths water. And that's kind of give you an indication why the wine master, or the headmaster at the wedding said, hey, you brought out the really good, you didn't bring out the diluted stuff. You brought out the really pure stuff later. So he tells the servants here, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. 
completely full, showing that Christ is not diluting this stuff. He's not adding just a little bit of wine in there and, okay, now it turned to wine. It is completely filled to the brim. No room for anything else but the water. And he tells them, now go and draw out some water and take it to the master of the feast. And it's interesting here because we just think, oh, just turn to water. But what happened to the earth? What happened to the seed? What happened to the vine? What happened to the sun and the water and the grapes and the crushing of the grapes and maybe the one-year fermentation process? What happened to all those steps? It's amazing. Miracle here. Something happened where Christ bypassed every one of those steps and took the water and says, you know what? I'm going to make it into purest, best wine, like wine from the Garden of Eden, the best thing you could ever have. And he does it instantly. Somewhere between these verses, it happens. This incredible miracle where Christ says, this is the way I'm going to start my ministry. Take it out into the master of the feast. An incredible thing happens here. What happens? Well, you know what happens. The, the wine is served to the head um, master. And he says, this is the best wine ever. I've never tasted anything quite like this. You say the best wine for last. Why? This is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. Why? To manifest his glory. Don't miss that. Why did Christ do that? Because his mom told him? Because it embarrassed the groom? Because it wanted the wedding to go on a little bit longer? No. Everything is about his glory. Everything is about Christ showing, let me show you who I am. Let me take you deeper into something. And I don't want you to miss my love, my compassion, my joy, my inescapable power to do whatever it needs to be done. Christ is showing here his glory. When we see his glory, we see the power, we see the compassion, this should be everyone's response. Disciples believed in him. And that's it. Christ said, you know what? You five, is probably Andrew, Simon, Nathaniel, Philip. One other, we're not sure which one. These five probably believed in Christ right there. Like, hey, this is our guy. We saw what happened. We saw the water turn into wine. We saw that you did it. Only you could do it. We believe in you. Last week was come and see. So they saw and they spent time with Christ. This week they experienced in his manifestation of his glory and they believed in him. Okay, so if you want to mark this down, you guys have this in your journals. This is the most summary verse of John 20. But all these are written, the whole gospel of John is written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and what? And by believing, you may have life in his name. It's very important here that you understand this, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Remember, even the demon, demons believe that. Even Satan believes that. These guys know. They know who this guy is. They know that he's Jesus, the son of Christ. There's another step here, not just believing that Jesus is the son of Christ, but by believing you may have life in his name. And that's what we're really after. The changing of our identity, not just believing, but changing our life, that we may have life in his name. Our lives are forever changed by knowing who Christ is as our Lord and Savior, authority in our life, our allegiance no longer to the earthly allegiances, our allegiance is now completely to Christ. Just as he made the break with his mom, we now make the break with the world and our selfish attitudes, and we put our life and our belief completely upon Christ.
Okay, let's close with the word of prayer.